Good morning, Chapel Hill. It is so good to be with you. We are so blessed at this church to have a team of musicians like we do, right? Amen? So blessed. Not every worship pastor can uh, take a Sunday off (laughs) and preach and just watch his team work, and we are so blessed. I am especially grateful. Uh, Many of you don't know the the woman here that has dark hair. uh, She's our worship coordinator. She's my right uh, hand woman, and she does an amazing job leading everything and coordinating everything. So I'm grateful especially for Becky, and I'm grateful for you because we are gathered here together in the name of Jesus to open his word and to see what he has uh, to teach us. If I haven't said this already, my name's Gunner. I'm one of the pastors here at Chapel Hill, and it's always a joy to be with you. Uh, we are continuing our series in the book of Luke. We've been in it for a while, okay? A big book, and we're going to continue making our way through, but we are getting toward the end. We're going to find ourselves in Luke chapter 20. So I'd invite you to please open your Bibles. Uh, Let's uh, make bringing your Bible to church cool again, okay? Uh, Let's bring our Bibles to church. Uh, But if you don't have a Bible with you, there's a pew Bible in front of you. We're going to be turning to Luke chapter 20, and I'll, I'll give you a moment to turn there. And as you're doing that, uh, I think it would only be appropriate to acknowledge this has been an unbelievable last couple of weeks, hasn't it? Particularly on the world stage and especially in the Middle East. And it's been heartbreaking uh, to watch everything that's going on. Heartbreaking. Uh, I saw this meme, this image this last week, and it was a much-needed moment of levity for me. It says, me looking outside to see what chapter of Revelation we're doing today. That's what it can feel like, right? It can feel kind of apocalyptic. And I don't know about you, but this sort of thing has crossed my mind the last couple of weeks. Is this the end here? Is this the end of the world as we know it? And that's exactly what we're going to talk about in our text today. Our passage is going to speak to this subject of the end. And it's not going to answer the timeline question of when the end is coming, the signs of the end, these sorts of things. Instead, this passage is going to help us actually look beyond the end a little bit. And I think that's going to be really helpful for us to ground ourselves in the eternal reality. Because from a biblical perspective, the end is just another beginning. Amen? That's the good news. And so we find ourselves today in Luke, the 20th chapter, beginning in verse 27. Now, I'm going to warn you ahead of time, you're going to want to buckle your pew belt, all right? Because it's a long text. It's kind of three stories in one, and we're going to read them all, all right? So we're going to begin verse 27. This is God's word to us today. There came to him some who? Sadducees. Okay, we haven't seen them before. Those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked Jesus a question, saying, Teacher... Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. Now, in the resurrection, therefore, Whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels 
and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the burning bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he's not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. But he said to them, Jesus said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes, who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. We believe that this is the word of the Lord, and so we say, thanks be to God. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your word, which is timeless in its truth, and we pray for your Holy Spirit to lead us into all truth, to help us unfold these words of Scripture, because with the unfolding of your law comes light and understanding. We pray in particular, would you give us an eternal perspective? As we open your word, Lord, would you open our hearts to receive it, and would you make us more like your son Jesus? For it is in his name that we pray, and all God's people said, amen. The title of our message today is this, The Age to Come. Can we say that together aloud? The Age to Come. And I I pull this from what I think is the key to unlocking this passage, verses 34 and 35, where Jesus says, the sons of this age, and then he says, those who are considered worthy to attain to that age, right? This age, that age. The present age and the age to come. And these two ages, they're all over the Bible. They're actually the primary way that Scripture divides human history. This present age and the age to come. And we've shown images before. Pastor Ellis even drew one. I'm not a good enough artist, uh, so I just got something off the internet. Uh, But what you have here is this age and the age to come. And what brings the age to come into action is the second coming of Christ. And so we believe in this age and the age to come. And this image in particular, it reminds us that we as believers in Christ are living in the in-between times, the already not yet. Paul puts it this way, that believers are those, quote, on whom the end of the ages has come, he writes in 1 Corinthians. In other words, we are in the apex of the ages, when the age to come is invading this present age, when, in the words of George Costanza, worlds are colliding! Worlds are colliding. The age to come has begun to invade this present age. But we might ask ourselves, what is this age to come? What is Christ talking about? I mean, we're keenly aware of this present age. All we have to do is turn on the news. All we have to do is look out the window. All we have to do is be aware of what's going on in our world to see day after day just how broken it is. And so we grasp that. We get the present age. But what is this age to come? What's it going to be like? Who's going to be in charge? And how can we prepare? Well, that's exactly what we're going to learn from our text today. Jesus is going to show us the life of the age to come, the Lord of the age to come, 
and the lesson of the age to come. We'll take these one at a time. First, the life of the age to come. What's life going to be like when Jesus returns? In this coming age, beyond the end, what can we expect life to be like? And that's what we're going to find in our first several verses. Our text starts off with some context. It says, there came to him some who? Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. Now, this is the first and the only time that the Sadducees arrive on the scene in the book of Luke. We've seen the Pharisees, we've seen the scribes, we've actually seen this chief priest class, which the Sadducees were part of, but we haven't seen the Sadducees themselves. So who are they? Well, they were a unique crew, to put it one way. We know that they were a minority party in Judaism, but they had acquired a great deal of power, and their power center was at the temple where Jesus now was, teaching, speaking, interacting. And we get this little insight into what this minority class, these Sadducees, believed in Luke's description. He says, they deny that there is a resurrection. In other words, these Sadducees, they didn't believe in a life after death. You die, and then you're dead, and then it's over forever. This is why we don't want to be the Sadducees, because they are so sad, you see. Okay? Not just a hat rack. So this is the background of the question. The Sadducees, they didn't believe in a resurrection, and they had gotten this defense down. They knew how to defend their position to anybody, because it was really important for them to ridicule the position of others, like the Pharisees in the process. So they use this routine, and they, they decide that they're going to shoot their best shot at the Savior, and they say, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, this is straight out of the Torah. They're right. They're starting off with a, a, a true premise. They're, they're pulling this right out of the first five books of the Bible, what we call the Pentateuch, or the Law of Moses. And this is the only section of the Bible that the Sadducees acknowledged as authoritative. And it's there that, the Mos- that Moses delivers what is called the Law of Leveret Marriage. And we read this in Deuteronomy 25.5. It says this, If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. Now this this is totally bizarre to us. We don't practice this today. Thanks be to God. Uh, It's weird. We, we acknowledge that it's weird. In fact, it was so weird that even in Jesus' day, it probably wasn't in practice. People weren't doing this. This was for a specific uh, time and place. And that last line, if you notice it, that his name might, may not be blotted out of Israel, that's the point of the law. The point of the law is the Lord didn't want any family that belonged to this line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to miss out on the covenant promises fulfilled. He didn't want them to miss out on what it meant to be an Israelite, and so he wanted their name to continue. So that's, that's the background, and that's what brings this hypothetical scenario, this little story that the, the Sadducees uh, bring. It brings it to light. And they say, imagine that there were seven brothers, right? Imagine that there were seven brothers. The first brother dies, no kids. So the second brother takes the wife, dies, no kids. Then the third brother, the same thing, catching on. They keep going on. We're catching on. 
I don't know why brothers four and five weren't catching it, all right? This demon was lethal, okay? You can, you can bet that if I were brother six, I'd be heading for the hills, okay? I'd be, I'd get the heck out of Dodge. So all these brothers die, they leave no kids, and then thanks be to God, the woman slash husband killer finally hits the bricks. But the moral of the story is this. If all these people are raised from the dead, if they all go to heaven, using the language that, that we use, then who's this poor woman supposed to be married to? I mean, one husband is bad enough. You can ask my wife. We don't need seven. The point of all of this was to demonstrate from the Sadducees' point of view the absurdity of the afterlife. This is crazy to believe in this. It was meant to disprove the the beliefs of their opponents, the Pharisees, and in this moment to defeat Jesus in the debate. But we're going to find that they fail on all counts because Jesus was about to turn their whole view on its head. He says in verse 34, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For, notice that word, we have to notice these words when we study Scripture, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Now, there's a lot to unpack there, but here's the gist. It's from these verses that we get an insight into the life of the age to come. And here's the principle. In the life of the age to come, when Jesus returns, all that is temporal will give way to all that is eternal. All that is temporal will give way to what is eternal. And according to Jesus, marriage is temporal. It doesn't meet the eternal cut. It's not part of the eternal equation. And we might ask ourselves, why? Well, Jesus gives us a couple of reasons. One, according to him, is that we're going to live forever. And assumed behind this is that there's no reason to procreate And procreation is a key aspect of why God created the sexual union and marriage to begin with, to go forth and multiply. And another reason beyond that is that we are going to be angel-like, isangelos in the Greek, a word that is only used here this one time in the entirety of the Bible, angel-like. It doesn't mean that we're going to become angels. A lot of people believe that. That's a little strange, not in the Bible. We're not going to become angels. We are going to be like angels, angel-like. And we're going to know a union with God and His will just like the angels. And in fact, we're going to know this sort of union better than the angels because we've experienced redemption. We've experienced the forgiveness of sins. The angels have never experienced that. So we're going to encounter this union with Jesus at the marriage of the Lamb to His bride, which we read about in the book of Revelation. And that marriage will ultimately eclipse its earthly expression. Our marriages won't be so much over as much as they will be taken over by a greater love, a greater union with the Savior in the age to come. It can be challenging for for those who have loving marriages to wrap their minds around this, especially people who have been together for decades and they, they lose a, a, their, their spouse. It can be really difficult to wrap our minds around this idea that marriage ends at death. But that's what the vows that we take, right? Till death do us part. It ends at death. And this is tough for me because my marriage is pretty good, okay? I'm not saying it's perfect, but I love it. And I love my relationship to my wife, Amy. 
They're, that's the most important relationship in my life other than the one to Jesus. But when I'm honest with myself, there are times in my life when I think back to when I was single and following the Lord Jesus, and I was going through a difficult time, my first instinct was to pray. Now when I go through a tough time, my first instinct is to what? Call my wife. <laughs> you, you better bet it's good to call my wife. And, and, and don't get me wrong. Second to Jesus, those of us who are married, our relationship with our spouse should be essential. But notice how I start that phrase. Second to Jesus. Second to Jesus. Our marriage, it might be essential. Jesus is eternal. And it can be easy, honestly, for those of us with loving marriages in particular, and actually those with dysfunctional marriages, uh, to make our marriage an idol for our spouse even to become an idol. It can be risky to move from interdependent to codependent. And in the end, friends, that just puts a weight on our spouse that they cannot bear because they can't be your savior. They can't meet all your needs. If we are to order our lives and order our loves, in the words of St. Augustine, properly, our love for the Lord Jesus must be supreme because he is the only one who can save you and he is the only one who can meet your needs. In the end, this, this principle, it's a comfort to those whose marriage is a struggle, a challenge to those whose marriage is an idol, and an anchor for those who are not or no longer married. You can say, no matter where you are in relation to marriage, I am loved by God, and nothing and no one can change that. Here's the driving point here. A new day coming, a new life coming, a life of the age to come. When the temporal will give way to the eternal, a life where we will live to God and He will live in us perfectly. There's a new day coming when we will no longer be caught up in the fears and frustrations, pains, and problems of this present life, and we will be caught up and engulfed by come by the love of God. That is the life of the age to come. So that's the first thing that we learn from the Lord Jesus in that first big section of the text. The second one asks us, makes us ask this question. Okay, so we get what the life of the age to come is going to be like, but who's going to bring that about? Who's going to make this happen? And how is he going to do that? And that's what we learn in our second section, the Lord of the age to come. At this point, Jesus has been questioned a lot. It's been a long day for Jesus. Long Q&A session. He's done with it. <laughs> He's done being asked questions. It's his turn to ask the questions. And we pick up in verse 41. But Jesus said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, Psalm 110 particularly, if you want to look it up, he says this. This is David speaking. The Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And here's Jesus' question. David thus calls him, that is this Messiah, Lord, so how could he be his son? How do those two things go together? Jesus is speaking to the common belief of the day that the Christ, which is just a Greek translation of the Hebrew Messiah, Mashiach, that is the anointed one, that this, this Christ was going to be the son of David. And we've seen this title come up already in the life of Jesus. When the blind beggar came up and said, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. We use that as a, as a cry for mercy in our services. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. 
And then a few days previous to this encounter that we're reading about today on Palm Sunday, we read this, Hosanna to the who? Son of David. Let's put it up. Hosanna to the who? Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You see, the people and the religious leaders of Israel, they all acknowledged that there was a Messiah, a coming king from the lineage of David, a human being who would be sent by God to set things right again. Now, that's all great. That's all wonderful. It's all biblical. It's all based in the Old Testament, but it's missing a key aspect. Yes, the Messiah would be David's son, but he would also be David's Lord. In other words, Jesus is teaching them that the Lord of this age to come would not only be human, he would also be divine. Jesus is not just fully man, he is fully God. We must embrace this as part of our Christology or we're going into cult territory. This is an essential of the Christian faith. Jesus is fully man and he is fully God. One person, two natures. And here's why this is important. Because Jesus, the Messiah, the long-awaited king, is in the words of the old hymn, Great David's Greater Son. And because of that, he is the only one with the power and the perfect character to reign in the coming age, to rule over a restored world that he will establish. You see, with Jesus's, without Jesus' humanity, he cannot rule as one of us. Without Jesus' divinity, he cannot rule over us. We must know this nature of Christ, because this is exactly what we need in our broken world. We need a Messiah. We're looking for salvation in all the wrong places when it's on offer in Jesus. Jesus is coming back again, church, and he is coming back to set everything right again. This is the Lord of the age to come. Now, you need to know that this set of beliefs, it's uniquely Christian. There is no religion or philosophy on the planet that has this core doctrine of a Messiah King, God-man, who is going to come and restore planet Earth to the way that it should be. No other religion. Tim Keller, uh, the late pastor and author, put it this way. Outside of the Bible, no other major religious faith holds out any hope or even interest in the restoration of perfect shalom, justice, and wholeness in this material world. All other religions offer as salvation some form of liberation from ordinary humanness. The Christian life, however, is to see it from the perspective of the final restoration. Jesus is coming back again. Jesus is coming back again, and when he does, he will, as Psalm 110 says, sit at the right hand of the Father until he makes his enemies his footstool. And what that means is in order to establish justice, he must eradicate injustice. It will be an end to evil as we know it. If you're reading the news, if you're watching news on TV and you're going, when will this end? It'll end when Jesus comes back. It'll end when Jesus comes back. The reports that I've, I've been hearing personally, and I'm, I'm guessing you're similar to me, they're bone-chilling of what happened uh, at the hands of Hamas in Israel, and we're getting more and more reports. Uh, I was watching the news last night, and I jotted this down. Uh, these 1,400 people that were killed by Hamas, there was a woman who uh, was working in the morgue and collecting and, uh, uh, and placing the bodies of these folks who had been killed in, in one of the, the kibbutzim. And she, this is Israeli reservist, she said this, and I just had to write it down. 
I'm a child of Holocaust survivors. I grew up hearing stories of the camps. I thought those were the worst stories. These stories are worse. I never thought I'd live to see something worse than the stories I grew up with. This is the evil of this present age. When we know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we can call evil what it is, evil. And we can call good what it is, good. Knowing the Lord of the age to come and anticipating the eternity that God has prepared for us gives us an eternal perspective right here, right now. To discern right from wrong, to discern truth from error, to discern good from evil. We must have Jesus Christ. Otherwise, we have no way of discerning a true north of justice. We ought to participate in the plan of God to restore all things, to be part of God's kingdom coming to earth, the age to come, breaking through into the here and now. But how do we do that, right? And that's what leads us to this third point. What does it look like to prepare for eternity, to prepare for the age to come? And that leads us to our third and final point, the lesson for the age to come. How do we live in light of eternity? We're going to give one principle because Jesus gives one principle here for us to prepare. Now, at this point, the argument's over. Jesus won. I think that's pretty clear. Jesus won. There's a resurrection. He clears up while actually gets them to start thinking about who this Messiah truly is. And then we read this in verse 45. It's a shift. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to who? His disciples. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, who love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses, that is, they take advantage of their status, and for a pretense make long prayers. And here is the warning. They will receive the greater condemnation. This is a list of of behaviors, what I I might call attention-seeking behaviors. Uh, You get really familiar with these when you're the parent of a toddler. I don't know. Attention-seeking behaviors. The only difference for Kennedy is she deserves all the attention, okay? She's perfect. (laughs) But that's what these scribes were after. They wanted the attention They wanted the recognition, they wanted the glory, and that is a huge mistake, a huge problem, because God promises this in Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. God will not give his glory to any other because God deserves all the glory, amen? He gets all the glory. And so Jesus is saying, there is no room for self-exalting, attention-seeking pride in the kingdom of God and in the age to come. The only appropriate posture when we come to know the Lord of the age to come is to seek His glory alone in our lives. And the reality of the judgment means that we must prepare for the age to come, and the way to do that is by cultivating Christ-exalting humility in our lives. Pastor Mark has preached on this countless times. Uh, I love his question that he asks over and over, what is the pride trajectory of your life? What's the pride trajectory of your life, up or down? Do you notice your tendency to be recognized for your work? Is your voice, your opinion, your insight, your decision the most important one to you? Do you sort of scoff on the inside when you aren't acknowledged for your importance or your status? 
worse do you take advantage of your status? Are you your favorite topic of conversation? I love it. One of my buddies says it this way, but enough about me. Now you tell me about me. (laughs) That's a great line. If you're saying it, humility is probably not in the picture for you. These might be signs that we've got a little bit of a ways to cultivate humility in our lives. But if you see that as the years go by that you're looking for more ways to recognize the work of others more than your own, that you seek to listen intently to the voices and opinions of others, that you're willing to follow the lead of others, that you're willing to give up any sense of importance or status in order to serve the needs of others, if your heart is to exalt Jesus and to elevate others, even if it means that you have to sacrifice, well, then these are probably signs that the the Lord is at work in your heart to cultivate Christ-exalting humility in your life. And here's why this matters. If we don't cultivate this sort of uh, humility, we are not ready for the return of Christ. We are not ready we aren't prepared. Because in the age to come, the glory of God and the good of others will be your highest aim, and everything else will pale in comparison. And this life, in this present age, is our opportunity to prepare for that life to come. Those who are exalted will be humbled, and those who are humble will be exalted. That is the paradigm and principle of the upside-down kingdom of God. So what is the pride trajectory of your life, and how might you cultivate humility in your heart so that you are better prepared for the age to come? It's striking to me in this idea of the greater condemnation. That's how our passage ends, right? It talks about those who will receive a greater condemnation. And then if you rewind a while back, it says those who are counted worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection of the life to come. There's two groups— those who are going to be condemned and those who are going to be raised to new life. Two groups of people, two paths. We, and indeed all of humanity, have a decision to make. Which path will you take? The path that leads to resurrection and exaltation with the Lord Jesus or the path that leads to greater condemnation and judgment? And this, I think, this question brings all of these passages together to close. It connects the dots, and it reveals to us the good news of the gospel, and here it is. The way to the life of the age to come is to believe on the Lord of the age to come so that he might live through you to live out the the lesson of the age to come. It's in swearing allegiance to King Jesus that we find freedom from the greater condemnation and abundant eternal life that starts right here and springs on into eternity. And it's when we come to know the one who humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, and who was exalted to the right hand of the majesty on high, that we can follow him in living lives of humility and humble sacrifice, anticipating the glories of heaven. This is the message our world desperately needs, and you have it. You have the treasure in earthen vessels. So what will you do with it? How will you cultivate an eternal perspective? Where will you share the good news? How will you pray? All of this is impacted as we come to know the age to come. In the words of a contemporary worship song, we need to have feet on the earth and a heart full of heaven. 
to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And in the meantime, say with all the saints, even so come, Lord Jesus. Let us pray. Almighty God, to whom all hearts are open, you see us for who we are, and you know us better than we know ourselves. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray, come and apply to our hearts the words that we've learned from Holy Scripture. Help us to put them into practice, to share this good news of the gospel, to pray as Jesus taught us to pray, and to be a force used by you to prepare the way for the King and the kingdom to come. We long for that day, and we pray with your global church saying, Amen, even so come. Lord Jesus. Even so come, Lord Jesus. Can we say that aloud together? Even so come, Lord Jesus. That is our prayer today, and we thank you that we can walk out as resurrection people because of the good news of the gospel, and we sing your praises. In the matchless and mighty name of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all God's people said,
Jesus for my family, I speak the